good morning. It's really a privilege and a joy to be with you today. Uh, on behalf of uh, my wife, Jenna, and I, let me say um, thank you and convey a warm welcome uh, from our church in Mebane, Grace Reformed Baptist Church, uh, and from our elders there. Uh, we remember you often in our prayers, and um, we are thankful for our relationship and our partnership in the gospel. And uh, I have admired uh, your, your pastors here from a distance for some time, and uh, I'm thankful by God's grace there have been um, bonds forged of real relationship between uh, us and them, and uh, really have appreciated uh, their faithfulness here in this church. And we've also profited, especially from Pastor Justin's ministry uh, at our church, uh, Grace Reformed in Mebane. But we're very glad to be here. I consider it a privilege and a delight to be with you this morning. Let me ask that you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. Uh, we'll spend all of this morning our time together in John 6 and verse 37. John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. John 6.37 is what might be called an epitome text, an epitome text. Uh, epitome is that word when you come across it in your readings, maybe you pronounce it epitome, uh, but, but John 6.37, like some other texts in Scripture, are what might be called an epitome text. Now, what do I mean by that sort of language? An epitome text uh, is a text in which uh, profound truths are conveyed in very concise and uh, muscular and arresting language. And we have in John 6, 37, such a text, a text that captures large and, and uh, uh, magnificent truths that sum up uh, uh, such crucial things in one small text in John 6, 37. Uh, now, I have to confess I have a great deal of personal history with this text uh, John 6.37 has appeared to me at a number of pivotal times in my Christian walk as one of the most wonderful texts in all the Bible. Listen to this quote from Martin Luther. Luther says, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold on me. And at several points in my own Christian life, I believe John 6.37 has done this very thing to me, it has pursued me. It has laid its hands on me. It's taken hold of me. I can remember as, as a new convert when I first came to faith in Jesus Christ, John 6, 37, coming to me and sort of arresting me and grabbing hold of me and telling me, Jesus receives sinners. I can remember uh, later on a few years into my Christian life, John 6, 37, again coming to me in a wonderful way in the midst of an intense battle over assurance of salvation. And I can remember this text chasing me down, grabbing hold of me and saying, all whom the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. And more recently, I can remember this text coming to me in power and once again laying its sweet and gentle hands on me as, as my wife and I and our team from Grace Reformed in Mevin, looking out over a population of about a quarter million in Winston-Salem, wondering how our fledgling group of disciples will ever make a dent in Satan's kingdom there in Winston-Salem. 
And I remember John 6, 37 speaking softly to me, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And recognizing that his eternal plan, his purposes will never be thwarted. So there's a great and sweet and wonderful history that I have with this text. But it is a text, I believe, that conveys some of the most marvelous truths in all the Bible. And so I'd like to draw our attention to this text this morning. Uh, we'll consider this text on its own under three headings. Uh, the headings that I've uh, organized for our time together are these. First of all, the Father who gives. Secondly, the Son who receives. And then thirdly, the Savior who keeps. The Father who gives, the Son who receives, and the Savior who keeps. But before we dive into this one verse, I'd like to say a few things about the context. If you have your Bibles open to John 6, uh, we're not going to read uh, the entire chapter, but I just want to sum up some of the events so maybe your eyes could glance over uh, the words that are earlier in the chapter as I sum up uh, what has just taken place leading up to this magnificent text in John 6, verse 37. Some of you may know in John 6, Jesus performs this amazing miracle where he feeds uh, the 5,000. Perhaps that crowd was much larger when you include women and children. Jesus has performed this, this wonderful miracle, a demonstration of his power and his authority as the Son of God. And uh, these crowds that are there, they perceive that Jesus must be a king or someone special. And uh, Jesus perceives that they're about to lay their hands on him to make him a king by force, and that's not what Jesus came to do. He came to go to the cross, and so Jesus withdraws from these crowds, and he goes across the sea, and the crowds hear that he's gone across the sea, and so they get in boats, and they follow him uh, over there to, uh, to where he is, and uh, Jesus, upon seeing those crowds, he perceives uh, what maybe at that time they didn't even know themselves was true. Uh, that though they had this positive response to Jesus, so they were amazed by this miracle of feeding the 5,000, uh, Jesus perceives that they don't have real faith. That they were maybe amazed by the miraculous multiplication of food. Uh, maybe they were excited and thankful uh, that, that actual bread had been provided for them, that they had been fed and that he had satisfied uh, their bellies. And so they come maybe for more food or maybe to see more wonderful signs and miracles. But for whatever reason they came, Jesus perceives they don't have real faith. And after a back and forth for several verses, we arrive at verse 36, where Jesus confronts their unbelief outright. Jesus says, verse 36, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. Now keep in mind this, maybe some of you know this, maybe not, in John 5, uh, which comes right before John 6, Jesus had told the Pharisees that he had come uh, sent on an errand from his father, uh, that he had come to do the will of his father. The father had given him a task, and therefore the authority that Jesus had did not come from himself, but it came from his father who sent him in, into the world to accomplish a task. And as I've read in the Gospel of John, as you get into chapter 6, you, you might expect this Savior who came in the world to not judge the world, but to, that through him the world might be saved, you might expect now he's going to do it. Here in John 6, these crowds are there and he feeds them with physical bread that's pointing to the spiritual bread that is his body, is himself, the true bread that's come down from heaven. And you might feel like, well, well this is it. Now Jesus is going to do it. In wonderful ways, Jesus is going to save so many in this crowd and he's going to, to, to perform wonderful works of healing and salvation in these thousands of people. And then you get to verse 36 and the exact opposite has happened. Thousands come to him. 
Crowds of sinners are before him. And you might expect now these crowds are going to come and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe on him and have genuine faith in who he is. And the exact opposite takes place. Verse 36, I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. In fact, later on in the chapter, the crowds say to Jesus in verse 60, this is a difficult statement responding to his statement about having to partake of his flesh and drink of his blood. They say, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Now, we shouldn't hear that as um, maybe they were saying, this, this is kind of hard to understand. This is a real philosophical statement. Let's think about this. Really, what the crowds are saying is, I don't like this. This is abrasive. This is wrong. I don't agree with this. This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to this? Sure enough, in verse 66, we read that the crowds actually leave Jesus. Thousands walk away from him. So I think this begs a question. If some can see Jesus and his miraculous signs and yet still not come to faith, does that not suggest that his mission, the mission he was sent on by his father, was in some sense a failure? It's in the midst of all this, in the face of rank unbelief, that we have our text this morning in John 6 and verse 37. Jesus says, as these crowds are before him, these crowds that he knows do not have faith, he asserts his confidence in his Father's work of drawing sinners to himself. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. That's our context. Now let's consider the text itself under these three headings. The Father who gives, the Son who receives, and thirdly and finally, the Savior who keeps. First of all, the Father who gives. Look again at the text. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Now, what's meant by this statement, all that the Father gives me? Remember, Jesus is saying this right in the face of rank unbelief. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus is pointing to his Father who is working. When confronted with the unbelief of the crowds, Jesus immediately goes to the work of his Father. He knows that behind the scenes, in an invisible way, the Father is working Jesus knows what these crowds don't know, and that is that though they think this is simply a matter of physical bread and signs, God is doing a work that they don't understand and can't perceive. Now, what exactly is the Father doing? Well, we read that he's giving, giving something, and he's giving something to the Son. He's not creating something. He's not speaking about something. He's giving something. There's a gift being given from God the Father to God the Son. And we would do well to ask, what is this gift? What is it that God the Father is giving over to the Son? I believe the answer is evident in our text. The answer is that God is giving, God the Father is giving souls to God the Son. He's given men and women to Jesus. And I think this is abundantly clear from our context and even from the text itself. And in the beginning of the verse, all that the Father gives me, we don't have any indication that Jesus is referring to people or to souls. All that the Father gives to the Son, this gift that's going from the Father to the Son, it might be anything. It might be glory. It might be authority. Uh, We don't know yet that he's talking about souls. But the all that in our text becomes the one who. All that the Father gives to me, this mass of people will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. 
So here's the idea. The Father is giving this whole group of souls over to Jesus that will inevitably come to him. And then the second half of the verse envisions when one of these souls actually does come to him. And it tells us how Jesus will treat that one soul who does come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a small point I want you to see here. It's not the biggest idea in our text, but I think it's there. I think some of God's people can get caught up in the all that. We could sometimes feel that, well, maybe the Lord Jesus loves me because I'm part of the church. He loves me because I'm part of this grand scheme of people throughout history. They don't realize that God loves them individually. That Jesus has actual dealings with every individual soul who comes to him. And so, believer, you are wonderfully, profoundly part of the all that. The all that that's given from the Father to the Son. But wonderfully, sweetly, beautifully, you are the one who comes to Jesus, if you have indeed come to him and believed on him. And the, the wonder of this text is that when an individual sinner comes to the Lord Jesus, he has personal dealings with each one. I think that's a beautiful truth. Now, the second thing I want you to see here as we're considering the Father who gives, I want you to see that God works sovereignly, drawing men and women to himself, and that as he does this, his will cannot be thwarted. He has given souls to Christ, and nothing will stop the Father from accomplishing his purposes. Now, why would Jesus say this here of all places? He's looking at all these thousands of people. He knows in a few moments they're going to leave him in unbelief. But here, the Son of God asserts his confidence in his Father's ability to accomplish the task. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Jesus is confident. Jesus is sure. Nothing can thwart my Father's plan. Listen to what D.A. Carson has to say in his commentary on this verse. Dr. Carson says, quote, However many people do not believe, God's saving purposes cannot be thought to be frustrated. Jesus' confidence did not rest in, listen to this, Jesus' confidence did not rest in the potential for positive response amongst well-meaning people. Far from it. His confidence is in his Father to bring to pass the Father's redemptive purposes. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus' confidence in the success of his mission is frankly predestinarian. God's work of sovereignly drawing men and women to himself, brothers and sisters, can't be frustrated. Nothing is going to stop him. God will win. Souls will come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And no power of hell, no scheme of man will ever stop the Lord Jesus from accomplishing the task that he's been given from his Father. For you uh, preachers here, for you evangelists here, for you faithful brothers and sisters who are trying uh, to, to communicate the gospel to loved ones and to neighbors and to friends in the workplace, to your children, in whatever capacity you're trying to advance the gospel in the world, I want to encourage you, God has done the work. The power behind your ministry, the power behind your evangelism, the power behind uh, your communication of the gospel in whatever context that's in, the power is in our verse here that God the Father is sovereignly working to draw sinners to himself uh, by giving souls over to the Lord Jesus. And so all you need to do, all you evangelists here, all you preachers here, all you faithful Christians who are trying to communicate God's word faithfully, all you need to do is communicate it. And you need to pray that God would work sovereignly to draw men and women to himself. There's victory in this text. 
There's courage in this text. There's sanity for preachers who come week after week trying to see lost men and women come to faith in Jesus Christ and they feel like they're failing. There's sanity in this text because God is doing a work in the world. There's courage in this text for missionaries who go to foreign countries and they wonder, how on earth will I reach someone in this remote village with all the obstacles of language and culture and sin and Satan's devices? How will I ever accomplish the work that's before me? There's something here in this text, power here in this text, that God is working in the world in wonderful ways behind the scenes And if he calls a sinner, if he gives a soul over to the Son, nothing will stop that sinner from coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And frankly, this has been a sweet salve for my soul as we contemplate going to Winston-Salem. We can go into that city and plant a church with the confidence that if there are souls that the Lord Jesus is drawing to himself, we're already victorious and we're praying that God would be pleased to use us in that way and that he would be his me- we would be his means of him drawing sinners to himself. But friends, before we leave this point, I'd like to say one more thing. Consider what a wonder it is that God the Father gives at all. Consider what a wonder it is that God the Father gives souls over to Christ the Son. God saves men and women by his divine initiative. It's plainly clear in the pages of Scripture. You could call it predestination, you could call it election, you could call it the Father who gives, call it whatever you like, but it's there in Scripture. But my brothers and sisters, is it not also confirmed in our experience? It's possible, I think, when one first comes to salvation in Jesus Christ to think that it was all of my own initiative, that I made the decision, uh, that I walked the aisle, I prayed the prayer. Uh, But as they say in the NFL, upon further review, You find that God was doing a work, that God was drawing the sinner to himself. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon, writing on the effectual call of God. He said this, let me refresh your memories with your calling. Was there not a day, the mementos of which you fondly cherish when you were called from death into life? Fly back now to the day and the hour if you can, and if not, light upon the season thereabouts when the great transaction took place, in which you were made Christ forever by the voluntary surrender of yourself to him. In looking back, does it not strike you that your calling must have been of divine origin? How gracious that calling must have been since it came to you from God, came to you irresistibly, and came to you with such personal demonstration. What grace was here? What was there in you to suggest a motive why God should call you? Oh, beloved, we can hardly ask you that question without the tear rising in our eye. Should not this calling of ours evoke our most intense gratitude, our most earnest love? Oh, if he had not called thee, where hadst thou been tonight? Who am I? What should I have been if the Lord in mercy had not stopped me in my mad career? This was a kind and gracious call when we consider what might have been. Where would you be this morning? Where would I be this morning if not for sovereign working of God? I know I wouldn't be here. Certainly wouldn't be preaching the Bible. I'd be a million miles from here 
in darkness and in sin on my way to hell. But the Lord Jesus stopped me in my mad career, as Spurgeon says. And if you're a believer, he stopped you at one point and called you and wonderfully worked to save you. And it's a wonder because he didn't have to do it. He didn't have to call anyone. He didn't have to give any souls over to the Lord Jesus. But this is the character of our great God who gives. Wonderfully, he gives. Now, secondly, and I'll move more quickly here, we've considered, first of all, the Father who gives. Secondly, in our text, I want you to see the Son who receives. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. There's just a few things I want you to see here under this heading, the Son who receives. First of all, I want you to see that the Son receives sinners because he's obedient to the Father. Remember, Jesus has been given a task from his Father. He has been given a mission. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus receiving of sinners can be understood, should be understood as an act of obedience. It's the, film, it's the fulfillment of a task that's been given to him by his Father. And so here's why I think that's wonderfully comforting. It may not sound like the most romantic notion, but I want you to see Jesus in saving sinners is obeying his Father, and here's why I think that's so wonderful. In order for us to imagine Jesus rejecting sinners, we'd have to understand him as being either disobedient to his Father or somehow unable to carry out the task that his Father has given him, and both, I think, are unthinkable. Both are even blasphemous. Our confidence that Jesus will receive sinners comes in our understanding that Jesus is on a task from his Father. He's obedient to his Father, and Jesus always obeys his Father. The Scriptures say he delights to do the will of his Father, and he has the power and authority given by his Father to receive sinners. Just a little ways on from verse 37, verses 38 through 40 in chapter 6 says this, Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now here's God's will that Jesus is going to fulfill. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son, believes in him, should have eternal life. And I will raise him on the last day. So sinner, your confidence which will be received by Jesus if you come to him can be grounded in the son's inflexible commitment to and delight in doing his father's will. But there's a second thing I want you to see here and that is that the son, specifically the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God, is the one to whom you must come. If you want to have access to God, if you want to be received into heaven, you have to come to the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. The Father gives these souls specifically to Jesus, and Jesus is the one who receives sinners. Sinners must come to him. We see this in a number of texts. I'll just list a few. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him, the Son, shall not perish but have eternal life. Uh, John 6, verse 35, just before our text, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. John 7, verse 37, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me 
and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. John 12, 46, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Sinners must come to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, if they are to be saved. That leads me to a third idea here under the Son who receives, and that is that Jesus always receives sinners who come to him. Jesus always receives sinners to come to him. If they come to him, Jesus' message to them is that he will receive them. The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Jesus saves and receives sinners. We sing a song at Grace that goes like this. Jesus sinners does receive. Word of surest consolation. Word all sorrow to relieve. Word of pardon, peace, salvation. Not like this can comfort give. Jesus sinners does receive. My lost friend, if you come to the Lord Jesus today, he will receive you. If you come to him in repentance and faith, you have this promise from the word of God. You can take it to the bank. If you come to him, he will receive you. He will never cast you out. He will not wait till you're more qualified, until uh, maybe you've achieved certain status, maybe until you've uh, put together some record behind you of good deeds. No, he will receive you as a sinner. The wonderful message of the gospel is that Jesus sinners does receive Listen to this quote. I've just come to love this quote from John Brown commenting on this text. John Brown says, quote, No degree of previous guilt, no former habits of sin, no secret decree of God, no involuntary mistake, no feebleness in attempting to come to him will induce him to reject a single individual who, in the faith of the truth, comes to him. For salvation. Nothing, friends, can disqualify you from coming to the Lord Jesus. I don't care what's in the rearview mirror. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what's in your heart. If you come to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith, you have this promise. He'll receive you. He'll have you. He's not going to just sort of take your application and say, well, we'll consider it. And maybe, maybe we'll get back to you in a little while. No, he'll receive you. And he'll make you safe. And he'll invite you into his home. And he'll bring you to the paradise of God. And he will save you fully and finally and completely. Now thirdly and finally, we've seen the Father who gives, the Son who receives. Now thirdly, the Savior who keeps. There's a weakness in my outline. You might be led to believe that these are three different characters. Well, there's only two characters in my outline. There's the Father and there's the Son. And then again, the Son who is the Savior, the Savior who keeps. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And now the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. The Savior who keeps. Uh, I'm going to share with you uh, a little bit of the Greek behind this verse. I, I think it's helpful. Okay? Uh, the Greek, the original Greek, it says this, this, this last part of the verse. Ou me ekbalo echo. Ou me ekbalo echo. Echo. In English, we translate that, I will by no means cast out. U means no. Uh, may means no. Ekbalo, echo, basically means to throw out or to cast out. So you might see we have a bit of a problem in the text. There's a double negative there. U, may, ekbalo, echo. Now maybe some of you kids 
could tell me what a double negative is. Technically, we're not supposed to use double negatives in common speech, but this is Rocky Mount, North Carolina, which is much like Nevin, North Carolina. Uh, uh, if I say, uh, he ain't worth nothing, right? I I'm, I'm saying he's not worth anything. Technically, though, if you say, he ain't worth nothing, you mean he's worth a whole lot because you've negated the negation. You following me? Okay, so we have a double negative in our text. So is Jesus saying, I will not not cast them out? That would be bad news for us. Uh, but in Greek, it works a little differently. When you have two negatives like this, ou, nay, they're both there for force. They're to convey power. They're to convey emphasis. And so we translate it not just that I will not cast out. This is why translators say I will certainly not cast out or I will by no means cast them out. And so, friends, Jesus' will to not cast out any sinner is inflexible. He emphasizes it. No, may it never be. I will not cast anyone out who comes to me in repentance and faith. I will receive them. There's no way I'm going to cast them out. Ooh, may, ek, balo, echo. May it never be. Certainly not. I will not cast them out. Isn't it good to learn a little bit of Greek? It's encouraging. John 6, verse 39 and 40, just a couple verses on, says this, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Brothers and sisters, our Savior is one who keeps all those who come to him. If you've come to him in repentance and faith, he will hold on to you. He will not let go of you. It will never be. It will certainly not happen. He will not cast you out. Once you're in, once you come to the Savior and have him and taste of him and are in Christ, you're safe. He's not going to let you go. He's not going to throw you out. He's not going to kick you to the curb. But he will, by his will and the will of his Father, keep you until the end. So let me close our time today with this question. You Christians who are here, how do you know, how do you know, tomorrow's Monday, how do you know that you'll have faith tomorrow? How do you know that when you wake up tomorrow, December 12, 2016, that you'll have faith tomorrow? Well, that's just me. I just keep doing what I do. I've been a Christian for 40 years, but just get up and do the same thing, I guess, and, and I'll have faith. If that is where your trust is and your hope is that you'll have faith tomorrow, Satan will come and wreck you. Satan will come and destroy you. But if your faith and trust is in the Lord Jesus and the fact that he's holding on to you and the fact that he'll never let you go, you're going to be safe, and you're going to make it, because all that the Father gives to him will come to him, and the one who comes to him, he will by no means cast out. To my lost friend who is here today, and maybe some of you children who don't know the Lord, you need to know this about him. This is what Jesus does with all those who come to him. 
He receives sinners. He invites them in. He says, come on, get in here. I will receive you. I will have you. I will make you safe. I will let you into my home. I will let you into paradise. If you would but come to me in repentance and faith. And once they come, how does he treat them? Oh, he keeps them. He'll never lose them. He'll never cast them out. He'll never treat them the way so many people in the world treat people. But he will have them receive them and hold on to them. I'll close with these verses from a song we've begun singing in Mevin. Do you sing the song, He Will Hold Me Fast, here? Oh, I'm so glad. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight. He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. Let's pray.